Last week, I gave a shear about what's called the Pnimiut, or the Pnimius of, of Hanukkah, which in many ways is very different to what most people think, as I explained last week. Um, what I want to do, since we're still really in the holiday of Hanukkah, I really want to elaborate on the theme that I had spoken about last week and introduce certain other questions and ideas. And uh, I think what will happen is it will really round out your understanding of the significance of Hanukkah, you see. So that's what I'd like to do. So I'm going to begin with a question. And uh, I would love everybody to respond. Uh, It's only a one-word answer. That's all. But it's interesting to see what people think. It's a very powerful question. Uh, I've never seen it written anywhere, but it's a very uh, it's a very powerful, dramatic question. What is the question? The question is this: <clears throat> We know that what we basically commemorate on Hanukkah is the miracle of the uh, the candelabra, the menorah. We know. What was the story? <clears throat> that when they, after they drove the Greeks out, they went into the Beit HaMikdash and they looked around for a vial of oil, right, in order to light the menorah. So what they did is they found one vial of oil that had a seal of the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, which meant that it wasn't broken, and it was not contaminated. It wasn't deemed tum'ah at all. So therefore, it could be used, that type of oil could be used to light the menorah. <clears throat> now, what was interesting, they only had one vial. Now, it would take eight days to get new oil, which was uncontaminated. Tohor. Why? Because they used to get their oil in the Galil. And of course, the Beit HaMikdash was in Jerusalem. So what they did, it would take four days. <clears throat> That's how long the trip took. To go to the Galil, get the uh, the oil, olive oil, and of course, uh, make it, manufacture it, and so on. And then it would take four days to come back. So it would take eight days to come up with vials of oil and therefore they realized that they only had one day's worth of oil that was uncontaminated so what we know what they did they said look better a little than nothing you see so what they did is they lit that oil expecting it to go out after one day instead it burned for eight days which is clearly a violation of nature we know that and that was the nest of the menorah. That what should have burnt for one day, burnt for eight. Then, of course, they had got new oil. And after that, it was just a regular natural combustion. So that we know is what happened. Now, we find, which is interesting, that this has become the central message 
because it's we see it as the central miracle of Hanukkah. So if you look at all the halachot in the Shulchan Aruch, all of it, you'll notice it's basically all about the, the menorah. You know, who has to light, when he has to light, how he has to light, where he has to place the menorah, who's exempt, who's obligated. It's all about the halachas of the shemen, the oil. And we know why, because we essentially celebrate or commemorate the miracle of the, uh, the menorah, the candelabra. <clears throat> but the question is why? Why do we do that? Now, I'm going to offer you the following questions, uh, which is very interesting. And what I want to do is dramatize the real message of Hanukkah, which is what I spoke about last week. But you really will see it now, you know, really emphasized and dramatized. The first question I will ask is this. It's a very interesting question. What happens? What would have happened with Hanukkah? Imagine if, when it did happen, which is approximately 163 BCE, before the Common Era. It's a long time ago. It's almost 2,000, let's say 150 years ago. Long time ago. What happens if instead of finding one vial of oil and then have to wait, right, for eight days and then the the oil oil would would have burnt miraculously, what happens, interestingly, and then, of course, the rabbis made a holiday, Hanukkah, because of that. But what would have happened had they found eight vials of oil not needing you know, to wait. Then they could have burnt one vial of oil each day, right? Miracle would not be necessary. And then after eight days, they would continue. So it comes out that there would be, there would be a menorah lighting, it's true, but there wouldn't be a miracle. So the question is this, what happens if that was the event? Would the rabbis have made Hanukkah? That is the question. In other words, are we really celebrating the miracle of the menorah that it burnt for so many days? Or are we celebrating the menorah? Not that it was miraculously burning. And they would have made Hanukkah even though. That is the question. It's a very interesting question. It would be nice to hear what people, everybody here would say, yes or no. So I'll throw it out. If the menorah would not have happened burnt because of a miracle, and they would have found eight vials of oil, would the rabbis have made, because then there would be no miracle of the, of the menorah, would the rabbis then have made the holiday of Hanukkah? Yes or no? Anybody want to answer? All you need is I one word. No. Yes or no? You say no. no. Fine. You don't have to tell me who you are. So I got one no. Anybody else? Yes. Yes. Somebody said yes? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's two. Anybody else? I say no. You say no. Okay. That's three. I say yes. Okay. You say yes. Okay. 
So what do we got? We got two no's and two yeses? Three no, uh, two no's, three yeses. How many yeses? Three. Three. Three yeses and two no's. Okay. <clears throat> what do you say? But it's a great, it's, what was that? What do you say? Well, I'm going to say what I'm going to say, but then I have <laughs> to show you why. The answer is yes. Hanukkah would have happened. In other words, the rabbis would have made a holiday, notwithstanding the fact that the menorah did not burn miraculously, they still would have made Hanukkah. And of course, I have to explain why, which is a very interesting question. And the answer tells us why Hanukkah was made a holiday in the first place. Now, I had asked also a second question. Why did the rabbis make a holiday at all? At all, You see, there were many times that Jews were persecuted, right? They were killed and persecuted and so on. And then they were saved. The rabbis didn't make a holiday for every occasion that that happened. You know how many holidays we would have if we would be commemorating all the dangers that the Jewish purple people went through, possible threats to their existence? And they did not make the holiday. So why did the rabbis make the holiday of Hanukkah? And maybe what's even more important, how do the rabbis know when to make a holiday and when not to? So that's, that's a question, a second question. A third question, if you really think about that, what is the essential miracle of Hanukkah? Well, guess what? It's not the menorah. It's the victory, the war between the Jews and the Greeks. There were approximately 10,000 Jewish soldiers. And they were not professionals, really. They basically, from the citizenry that was gathered by the uh, Maccabees, you see. And the Greeks, there were approximately 125,000 battle-hardened soldiers. Now, when you think about that, that's not even a contest. That is a miracle. How can 10,000 soldiers beat 125,000 soldiers of the Greek army? Which is incredible, you see. So the question is, that's obviously the miracle that happened, that the Jews were able to defy, you know, the philosophy and the culture of, of Greece and it was a war to the death so then if that's the case uh, how come we don't find that we commemorate victory we don't really commemorate the victory although we do mention it in Shimon Esrei which is Rab Mi Biyad Ma'atem the many in the hands of the few that's true but we don't commemorate it really I mean, if you think about it, you look at the Shulchan Aruch, and almost the whole Shulchan Aruch is all about the Menorah, like I said before. So then the question is, why don't we commemorate the battle in itself, if that's the essential miracle, you see? And not only that, another question is that um, the miracle of the Menorah if you think about it, it's really a side miracle. 
It's not the essential idea of Hanukkah. You know, the miracle of the menorah happened three years after the war started. You see, <clears throat> and it happened, <clears throat> and that's when the miracle happened. But that was a miracle that happened incidentally. You know, they needed oil, and all of a sudden you find that they had the oil burning miraculously for eight days. That's not the essential idea of Hanukkah. Like I say, the essential idea of Hanukkah is the war, is the victory. It was an unbelievable victory. So why is the holiday so concerned with the menorah? So that's also a very important question. So I have asked a number of questions. Each one, you know, it's a powerful questions that point to what exactly is the essential message or the essential uh, aspect of what we commemorate with the, uh, the, the, uh, the Hanukkah. That's the question. Now, to answer this, I had spoken last week. And really what I said last week really answers the question. You see. And what is that? <clears throat> and that is that Hanukkah is really all about the necessity to correct a spiritual damage. And I mentioned that the damage that the Jews did was the chet of the eagle, was the sin of the golden calf. So by accepting some type of avodizora, so to speak, an eagle, a golden calf, what they did is they rejected or they defied the messianic light, which is called the orpnimi. And that is that the Rabbanishim is Enoid Mavadoi. Besides God, there is nothing else. You can't represent God by any object. You see, God is not, is not a representative. or You cannot use a representative to stand in the place of God. In any case, since the Jews sinned, so the Kabbalah, which means the reception or the acceptance, of the Opnimi, which really is the Messianic light, was in many ways rejected. Now, therefore, the Jews had to bring a tikkun for that. Because what God wants is, you have to accept all aspects of the Torah. Torah B'Ksav, Torah means the written law and the oral law, and also the Opnimi, and the failure at the Cheto Egel, the sin of the golden calf, is a failure of accepting the Opnimi, the, uh, the inner belief system of the Jews. You see, what's interesting is that uh, one of the things that God revealed to the Jews during Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, like Rashi says, it says, You have been shown that you may know right, that God is the Lord, besides God, there's nothing else. So Rashi says there, it's in Devarim, he says there, right, that the Roshim showed him, and the Rashi says this, he is the Yichud, he is the one of the entire creation. There is nothing else. So with that type of insight, it is remarkable 
that they did build the Chet Ego. They, they did build an Ego, a golden calf to worship. Uh, therefore, that was the problem. Therefore, there was lacking some type of spiritual necessity that they had to accept all of the Torah with a full commitment. This is what was lacking and wanting in order for the Jews to proceed it was a tikkun, the rectification of creation itself. So I mentioned last week that what God did is he provided a way that the Jews could atone. So I mentioned that he made Greece great, you see, because Greece, the philosophy and the culture of Greece is a philosophy which is an exact antithesis of the Omashiach which is the Opnimi, the Messianic light, you see, which is the inner light of the Torah. That, they have the exact opposite philosophy. So what he did is he made them grow, you see, made them very successful. So they, what they did is they Hellenized the entire Middle East, actually, basically, the entire known world, but certainly Israel, Judea. And he said, well, let's see what the Jews do when they are confronted with this philosophy which is anti the internal light, that God is the only thing that runs any everything. <clears throat> and therefore, that was the supreme test. And that was the opportunity for the Jews to atone for what the Jews 800 years ago failed to do. Or rather, actually, more than that, uh, like 12, 1300 years ago. And they succeeded. Therefore, the essential idea of Hanukkah was to undo the defect of the golden calf and therefore accept the, the uh, Orishan, which is the first light, which is the Opnimi. That is the essential idea of the entire Hanukkah. And that's what they did. Therefore, we see something very interesting. If that's the case, if the real accomplishment of that war, right, was to accept, right, and to embrace the belief in Judaism of the Opnimi, of the internal light, the fact that God is Enel Mavadoi, God is the only thing that exists, that was the essential message. So we therefore see, if that is that, it answers the questions. One, even if there was no miracle with the menorah, which I mentioned, <clears throat> the menorah was the symbol of the restoration and the rededication of the opnimi, the hidden light of the Torah. That's really what it was. And the menorah is the instrument in the Beis HaMikdash that represents that light. And of course we know there are seven because we know that the internal light, right, is energized and so on by the seven lower spheres. It's called the Zion Tachtoinus, the seven lower spheres, and that's why there are seven, right, branches of the menorah. That's what it represents. So, <clears throat> therefore, that's what the Jews had accomplished. So, the war itself, even though it was an incredible victory, is not the essential message. The war is a message insofar as the Jews defied 
the belief of Greece. But the real message is what the Jews did. What was their achievement? Is that they rectified the sin of the golden calf. If that's the case, so the rabbis would have made it a holiday even without a miracle. Because the, the essential accomplishment was to rekindle the menorah, which is the symbol, right, of the messianic light. It's an interesting concept. I think most people think that it was the miracle of the light. No, it was the fact of the light being rededicated because that signified what the Jews did. So therefore, what I'm saying, therefore, is even if there wasn't a miracle, they still would have made Hanukkah because that's what Hanukkah is. It is an undoing of the sin of the golden calf. Now, the second idea is why did the Jews make it a holiday? Because if the Jews do a new spiritual uh, task and they accomplish what's called a new tikkun, a new rectification, then that deserves a holiday. If they reinforce a previous one, then that is not a holiday. But since the Jews had rectified the golden calf, that was a new spiritual attempt or spiritual, uh, the achievement spiritually is to rectify that and to accept the, to accept the, the, the uh, or pnimi, the inner light, then that's a new rectification. That's a new or. That is a new light in creation. So that has to have its own holiday, you see. And therefore, that's when the rabbis know that you have to make a holiday because it's a completely new spiritual achievement, you see. So that's why the rabbis made it into a holiday, you see. And therefore, um, like I say, whether there was a miracle attached or not, this would be a new holiday. So the essential idea of Hanukkah is not the war, even though it looks that way. The essential idea is the rededication, you see, of the messianic light. And that is represented by the menorah, you see. Now, it was miraculously lit because God was showing them exactly what the Jews had accomplished, which they did not realize. But by allowing the Jews to rekindle the menorah, you see, he was indicating to them that that is the spiritual achievement that they did. And that is a very important idea, you see. So that basically answers a lot of the questions of what I asked. And that's really what you have to focus on. In any case, this is what happened. Now, <clears throat> there are certain other ideas of Hanukkah which all alluded to this. For instance, why are there eight candles? Now, we know, we know ostensibly why. Because it took eight days to get new oil. But it's more than that, because eight candles is what? The number eight is indicative of Ilam Habo. We know that this world is 6,000 years long, right? We know that in the 7,000th year, which begins in the English year 2240, right? We know that's the 7,000th year, but that is not Ilam Habo. 
that is an intermediary status stage the ilm habo which is the beginning of the whole creation physical world the change into a spiritual domain which is ilm habo uh, starts at the year 8000 which is the year 7001 that is the 8000th year and it goes on from 7 to 8 and 8 to 9 you see so those eight candles really represent the light of the 8,000th year, which is the year 7,001. Now, the second idea is, is a halacha, that it says that we say this, in our nearest halacha, that you're not allowed to have any type of enjoyment or benefit from these lights. That's why we have a shamash. Uh, so we do not in any way benefit uh, from the lights of the menorah. The question is, why not? And the answer is, because the lights of the menorah, what are they for? They're not to light up the place so you can benefit from the fact that you could now see better. This light represents not light to benefit from, but it, it, this light represents a hasoga, an insight an understanding, you see. So therefore, the lights really reveal a different aspect of reality. It's not the standard usage of light. Rather, this light represents, it is symbolic of another type of light, but not a light that you use to see. It is a light that represents a new understanding of reality, which we know is what? Is the opnimi, is the messianic light. That is why you really cannot benefit from them because that's not what they're for. What they're for is to present a different view of reality so you can look at them, you see, but you can't benefit from them. It's interesting how the halachas itself represents the meaning of what the menorah is all about. And then we know Hidur that the Hanukkah lights have a mitzvah of Hidur. Hidur means to beautify or to enhance the light. And we do that, right, by using oil. That's called a Hidur mitzvah. That is a mitzvah, right, that beautifies, enhances uh, the mitzvah. Why? Why do we have to use Hidur? Or why do we have to beautify? And the answer is, because that's really what the messianic light is. The messianic light is a wisdom that is incredibly beautiful to watch, to look at, because it organizes all reality, you see, into one idea. It's a very important concept, what the messianic light is, you know. <clears throat> and let me explain. Wisdom has two concepts to it, or there are two different aspects to wisdom. The first aspect to wisdom, right, is called the Chimer. Well, what are the ideas? What are the details of this discipline? Whatever it is. Second aspect is called the Tzura. Not the Chimer, which is the material itself, the details, but the Tzura. What is the shape, the configuration, the structure of this information? 
<clears throat> you see. So the, what the Orishan is, the Messianic light, is when you apply the Tzura to the Chaymer. Because right now we have, our Torah is incredibly fragmented, tremendously fragmented, you see. The configuration or the organization, in many ways, is lacking, you see. In fact, even the Gemara comments on that, where it says that the Gemara, the Talmud, right, is rich in one place and poor in another. You see, it can have one topic, right, in one place, there's a lot of ideas, and in another place, it talks about the same topic, and it's poor, very few ideas. So the Gemara itself is, in many ways, not in the organizational form that would constitute, right, a real a framework of the Gemara itself. Uh, so it has Chaymer without Surah. What the Orishan does is not only it adds to the Chaymer, to the material, all the details, by what? By providing the details of the spiritual universe and how it interacts with the halacha itself, you see, provides that. But it also organizes everything and shows how all the choymer, how all the ideas of the Torah itself, how all of it is organized in one framework. That's tzura. And that's what the Orishan does, you see. In other words, the Orishan does what? Choymer. We, we have choymer, we have material, substance, ideas, halachas, right? But it's only about the halachas in the physical world. So what the Orishan is going to supply, and that's what the Mashiach does, is going to supply, right, much more details in terms of Kabbalah, which is the spiritual universe. But besides that, besides the material itself, which is disorganized, it also, the Orishan also supplies what's called the configuration, the structure itself, you see. And that's a major contribution of the Orishan. Therefore, since the Hanukkah lights represent the Orishan, and the major contribution of the Orishan, right, the first light, the Oragonas, that's what it's also called, the major contribution is not more details, but it organizes everything into a beautiful blend, harmonious blend, you see. Therefore, that's called beauty. And that's why the Hanukkah lights have to be beautiful, because they represent the light that is beautiful, which is the Orishan, the hidden light, the Oragonas, you see. And therefore, the oil which represents that also has the Hodor, beautiful, and that is olive oil. You see? So that is what's behind that halacha. Now this concept is a very important concept. You see? It's a concept that's like looking at a puzzle where you see thousands of pieces. But they're all pieces. But what happens if you put it together because you have the box? What the box is, which has the picture of this puzzle, is the puzzle. But it's a puzzle organized it's Chaymer, which is the pieces of the puzzle, and it is organized into a picture, you see? So then the picture looks beautiful. 
So in many ways, the Orishan is the picture of the box of the puzzle of the Torah itself. If you want to have a interesting uh, analogy and so on, you see. And that's really what goes on. That is the Orishan. Now, so that's why there's a halacha that the candle should be harder. I'm just showing you how the halachas themselves conform to the exact representation of the lights of the menorah. See, that's how you know when you hit the jackpot, which means you really understand. Because the halacha cannot be different than what's called the hashkafo, the makshava of Hanukkah. It has to conform, you see. And I'm showing you how it conforms. The concept of what the Orishan really is. You see. Now, what's interesting also is is an argument. Do we light one candle and go to eight? In other words, the, the amount of lights ascend. Or do they diminish? Which means that you light the first night eight candles and then you finally wind up with one. So there's a machloikis. Bishamim Beishilel, where Bishamim says you light eight and you get one less every night, right? So on the eighth night, it comes out you have only one candle. And Beishilel says, no, you start off with one and you add each one every night. So you wind up with eight at the end. And we, of course, we decide, we paschalize Beishilel. So we do that. We take one, and each night we add until the eighth night is eight candles. Mm. We can ask ourselves, what exactly is the argument here? You see. Now we know that based on what I'm saying, the essential message of Hanukkah is, which is that the rekindling of the Orishan, which Klai Yisrael damaged by the Chetuegel, the sin of the golden calf. So the question is, what is the argument? So you could say, you could look at it this way, that Beis Shammai says, well, the world has what's called period, separation. What God did is he created trillions of different things. What he did is he separated everything. So each one looks distinct from something else. So you have trillions of different fragments, you see, what the Orishan does is it connects all the dots. It takes all the fragments and unifies them into one idea. And at the center of everything is God. Therefore, it is proper to begin with eight candles, uh, right? Which is a multitude of candles, right? But since it represents the Orishan, right? Which is the hidden light which ultimately is the revelation of, besides God, there's only God, nothing else. So therefore, we go from multitude back down to the Orishan. So that's eight, which is multitude, right? We go back down to one, which is the Orishan, or the Orhagonas, or the Omishiach. It's all the same idea, the Oknimi, and so on. So that's what Beis Shammai holds. Since the entire essence of Hanukkah, what it was, is a rededication of the Orhagonas, the hidden light. Therefore, we start from period, which is separation, right, distinction, 
and we go all the way down to one, which is one candle, which represents one idea, one truth, which is God. Basila, however, they contend, you're right, you see, that really it would make sense to go from eight to one. But what's interesting is as you approach one, means as you see where everything is organized and united, right, then one increases, so the hasoga, or the period, or the separation decreases, which is true. But you know what increases? Kidusha, holiness. Because the closer you get to truth, the greater is the holiness that you will achieve. You see? So therefore, you start with one, which is one unit of holiness, two, three, and as you get closer and closer to the origin, you get holier. So that's why you go from one to eight. Eight being the full measure, right, of the, the, uh, the, or, the orishim, which is the holiness that you achieve by having that insight. You see? In other words, they're both saying the same thing. The question is, what do we use? Which concept do we represent? The descent of, of separations into one idea? or the ascent of the low end of holiness to a tremendous amount of kidusha or holiness. You see? But it's all based on the same concept, that the menorah really represents what? It represents the hidden light. You see? It's interesting when you realize, again, same consistency. Well, the essential message of Hanukkah is what? The essential message of Hanukkah is the concept of the rededication, the resumption, the restoration of the belief in Yid Mufadoy, you see? And therefore they rejected the Greek culture that believed that the world is physical, basically. Philosophy, science, architecture, literature, you see? Sports. The Greeks were into everything physical because the physical world was what they believed in. They're not into religion. They're not into spirituality, you see. And not only that, but they felt it was a threat. The whole concept of spirituality is a threat, you see. And that's exactly what the Jews rejected because it's against the concept of the Orishim. It's very interesting. You know, it's interesting also, uh, so what I'm trying to show is how even the halachas basically reflect exactly what the, the essential idea is and how all of it in many ways uh, shows us, you know, what the, like I say, the, the essential message. And therefore Hanukkah would be Hanukkah even if there was no miracle, you see, in any case. Um, now, I want to tell you something interesting which is in many ways good news. And it's interesting to think about what that could mean. This Shabbos is Rosh Chodesh. You see, it's Rosh Chodesh Teves. This Shabbos. It's Shabbos and Sunday. So that's the first holiness. It is Shabbos. The second aspect of Shabbos, which is really very interesting, is that it is Miketz, 
Parshas Miketz, right, is where Yosef got out of prison. And they took him out of, right, they took him out of the bore, of the pit, which is prison. So that's a second very good indicator. So like I say, this Shabbos is a Kiddush of Shabbos. Great. Second concept, it's Miketz. And that's when Yosef, who was the forerunner of Mashiach ben Yosef, right, that's when he was released. So that's Parshish Miketz. The third Kedusha of this Shabbos is that it's Rosh Chodesh. It is actually the beginning of a new month, so it has a certain Kedusha. We know every Rosh Chodesh has a certain Kedusha. And this Shabbos is Rosh Chodesh, you see. Another aspect, right, is this is Teves. Now, for those who don't know, Teves is the month of Esau. Yes, that's when the mazel of Esau begins. And it happens to end in Chamisha Osu B'Shvat, the 15th day of Shvat. And from then begins the mazel of Yosef, which is Ado also. So Teves is the month of Esau. That's when his mazel begins. That's why a lot of bad things happen in Teves, like Asura B'Teves, right? When they, they surrounded the walls, and that was the beginning of the end of the Beis Hamikdash. So that's Teves. So what's interesting is that this Rosh Chodesh is on, is about Teves, which is the month of Esav, you see. But what's interesting about that is that to counter that, Teves, you have Shabbos, you have Miketz, you also have the fact that it's Shabbos Hanukkah, you see? And besides that, like I said, so it has that Kedusha. But there's something else that's going to happen to Shabbos. I don't know if people are aware of it, but we know that a total eclipse of the sun is bad news for the Goyim. Like it says in the Gemara, Liku Yachamo, right? when there's a total eclipse of the sun, right? That's bad simon for the goyim. Well, guess what? This Shabbos in Antarctica, there's going to be a total eclipse of the sun. And it's the incredible thing is that it is exactly on Rosh Chodesh Teves, on the month of Teves, which is the symbol of the success of the evil of Esau. So it comes out that the sign, right, of damage to Esau, right, which is the total eclipse of the sun, actually occurs on the first day of his mazel being activated. Now, that is an incredibly good sign. But besides that, like I said, you also have to counter Esau's mazel, you have Shabbos, Parshas Miketz, with the Mashiach when Yosef is released. You have Rosh Chodesh, right? It's Kedushas, it's Hanukkah Shabbos, right? And it's, like I say, it's Rosh Chodesh, right? And there's an eclipse. All that is occurring, right, on this Shabbos. Isn't that amazing? I find that to be a tremendous uh, good news for the Jewish people, you see. And like I say, it's happening in Hanukkah itself.
Therefore, um, you know, I just wanted to mention that, that this is what's happening this Shabbos. So now we see certain very important ideas. We see that the halachas itself conform to the premise of Hanukkah, what it really is, you see. Now there's one more idea which I'm not going to elaborate on, but there's a rokeach. A rokeach is one of the early chazal. And here's what he said. He said that the eight days of Hanukkah is a parallel to the eight days of Sukkah. That's what he said, which is interesting. That we know Sukkah is eight days. I mean, by us it's nine because we live in Chutzlars, right? We live outside of Israel. But he says that, but really Sukkot is eight days. And the last day, Shemini Atzeres, right? And I gave a whole sheer about what Sukkot really is. You see, it's a rededication of the Jewish people to serve God. It's the contract being renewed. And the last day of Sukkot, Shemini Atzeres, which is, in a sense, God's signature, you see? And the whole agreement is renewed. So what he says is that the eight days of Hanukkah parallels the eight days of Sukkot, which is interesting, because that would mean that just like there's seven Ushpizen, there are seven guests in Sukkot, then there could be seven guests in Hanukkah. Who are they? We know Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Moshe, Aaron, Yosef and David, right? Seven. Now we know what the meaning of the seven because they form the fabric of the Avoida of Klai Yisrael. We have Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, right? They are the base, right? They are the root neshamas of all the Jewish people. Then you have, uh, then you have Moshe and Aaron, who are the givers of the Torah, Right? Moshe is the Torah Shabbat and Aaron in many ways is the Torah Shabbat because he's the one who taught the Jews. Moshe would give it to him, and he would then give it over to the Jewish people. And then you have Yosef, who is the root soul of the Mashiach ben Yosef. And then you have David, which is the root soul of Mashiach ben David, you see, which is interesting. So the basis of the Avodah of Klai Yisrael is really those seven, they call the seven shepherds, because they form the basic structure of the entire service that a Jew has. So therefore, you would have the same parallel. Now, there's an eighth day, which is Zeus Hanukkah, which is said to be the greatest of Hanukkah. It's the greatest day, because just like Shemini Atzeres, which is the eighth day of Sukkot, refers to God, Rabbanu Shlodim, his signature, then the eighth day of Hanukkah, which is Zeus Hanukkah Sabayis, right? That refers to also to the Rabbanu Shlom. Now, I find what's interesting, if that's true, then Shabbos represents which Ushpizen? It represents the Ushpizen of Yosef. Yes, right? Six. And Shabbos is the sixth day of Hanukkah, which is Yosef. But Yosef is the major protagonist enemy, opponent of Esau, right? Because we know, it says, V'hoyu le'beis Yaakov le'esh, the house of Jacob, 
right, will be fire. Beis Yosef Lehovo and the house of Yosef will be a flame of that fire. Or Beis Yosef Lekash and the house of Esau will be for straw. In other words, they will be consumed. So the central or the essential enemy of Yosef, of course, is Esau, you see. And therefore, if Shabbos represents the Ushpizen of Yosef in Hanukkah, but that's exactly when you have the total eclipse. So it comes out on the Ushpizen of Yosef, you actually have, uh, you know, in, in terms of Hanukkah, you actually have a total eclipse of the sun on Rosh Chodesh Teves, which is the beginning of the muzzle of Esav. I mean, that is wonderful news. What can I tell you? So this also, like I say, is coming up, you see. And the whole parallel of Hanukkah and Sukkot, you know, it's much more extensive, but these are just some of the ideas that, you know, more Kabbalistically, ideas that what these things seem to represent. <clears throat> In any case, like I mentioned last week, we know that there's no such thing as Mesech Hanukkah. Every Jewish holiday has a Gemara, right, that talks about the laws, right, of that holiday. Hanukkah has no Mesechta, you see. And I mentioned why. Because Hanukkah, right, because the Hashmanoim was supposed to give up the kingship and give it back to Beis David. Hashmanoim Kohanim, they are not allowed to rule the Jewish people. They can for a certain amount of time in order to conduct the war. But once the war is over, they should have gotten off the throne and reinstated the house of David, you see, which they didn't. So therefore, God mm-hmm. destroyed them all. Every last Hashmanoim were destroyed, you see. But in any case, Rebbe, who was from Beis David, was very angry, not because they affronted his uh, Beis David, because Rebbe was from the house of the house of David, but because of that, because really Hanukkah, because the Jews accepted out of love or out of tremendous self-sacrifice to fight the Greeks, because they did that and they actually brought a tikkun to the Chet Egel, then Hanukkah should have been a messianic opportunity. So again we find that since the Hashmanoim didn't get off the throne, that opportunity was lost. So Rebbe, Rabbeinu HaKadosh, Rabbi Yudanasi decided that he will not honor the Hashmanoim, right, because of what they did. And therefore Rebbe did not write a Masech to Hanukkah. So again, we have Hanukkah could have been a messianic opportunity. You know, it's interesting that the word Hashmanoim, if you break, if you take a look at the letters, it spells Shemen Aleph, which is one Shemen, Chesyoim, eight days. The actual mm-hmm. word Hashmanoim actually has the letters of Shemen Echot, which is Shemen Aleph, one vial, Chesyoim, eight days. I find that to be remarkable. That, that's what the word Hashmanoim stands for. And there are many other illusions that the Messianic, uh, this was a tremendous messianic, messianic opportunity. Like I mentioned last time, 
the dreidel has nun gimel heishin, neskod lohayasham, and the gematria of that, of nun gimel heishin, is 358, which again is gematria moshiach. Also, the word or in the Torah, the first word, when you encounter the word or, and there was morning and evening, one, uh, God said, let there be light. That word or is the 25th word of the Torah, which of course alludes to the uh, 25th day of, of Kislev. And we know that that word or, God said, let there be light. That light was the Messianic light. So again, um, that alludes to the, uh, the uh, Messianic light. You see, uh, there are many references to this. I'm just speaking in general about what all this is. So, we now understand that Hanukkah is really a holiday of the Mashiach. That's really what it is. And the main idea, the essential message, the essential symbol, that the Jews had to accept the opening me, the messianic light again, and undo the sin of the golden calf. Had they done that completely, then the Mashiach would have come at that point in time. And there's one thought that I had, which is interesting, because you find that they actually rededicated the temple. They got rid of all the tumor that the Greeks put in, right? And they rededicated the temple. It's interesting, with the concept of a rededication, it's almost as if they built a third base Amigdash. They didn't build it, but they rededicated it. Who knows? Would that have meant that the third base Amigdash would then have come down? And the answer to that is probably because what they had done was spectacular in terms of, you know, uh, uh, self-sacrificing in order to rebuild the belief system of the Jewish people. So, in any case, we can look forward to Hanukkah, you know, as I say, and again, it's a rededication that we believe that the, uh, the uh, Hanukkah lights represent the Messianic light. That's really what it represents. And uh, this is why we light the candles. The halachas conform to the whole concept of a Messianic light, you see. And the ideas that I said that on Shabbos is an actual total eclipse of the month of Teves, which is the month of the mazel of Esav. That's what begins his Esav, his uh, 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 mazel, which of course we see that because that in, by Goyim, that's when they celebrate their holiday as the month of Teves. That's when their holiday always comes. And we know that basically... They are Esau, as we know, Christianity, Western civilization, which they represent, is the uh, month of Teves, you see. So, uh, like I say, it's uh, fascinating that on the very Rishchodesh of Teves, there will be a total eclipse, which is, indicates a damage to Esau. And who knows if that doesn't begin, you know, the beginning of the Messianic process. And what I said also is very important, and I will close with that. The beginning of the Messianic process is not for the details. 
It's not just more details. Because the Mashiach, what he will do, is he will, the details he will bring far surpasses anything that we can possibly know, you see. And that is the problem. Right now, the Jewish people, the equivalent of the knowledge that they have, not that the learning, first of all, most Jews are gone. At least 11 million Jews are gone. But even those Jews who learn, you know, they learn a lot, but there's, not, there's no knowing going on. You see, this is part of the problem. So when the Mashiach comes, he's not just going to add another shot in the Gemara. No. He's going to reveal something which we have never seen before. Unbelievable Chachma. And the problem is that, you know, he's going to add details. But the real thing he's going to add is not just more details in terms of Kabbalistic thinking and the Pneumiesti or Mashiach. He's going to add the configuration, you see, the structure of the entire Bria. And that is something which we have never seen. And I'll tell you, in Parshish Noach, when it talks about Yefes, it actually alludes to that. It says, Yaft Elohim is Yefes, that God will enlarge, right, Yefes, which means, and that's the whole concept of, you know, wisdom, by the Greeks and by the world in general. And then it says, V'yishkoin, but he, meaning Yefes, all shame, will dwell in the tents of Shem. In other words, even though Yefes will be enlarged, which means it will become great, especially in wisdom, but that wisdom has to be within the tent, within the framework, the structure of Shem. You see? And that is the concept of Tzura the Choymer. That is the concept of structural organization of all the information into one magnificent concept. And that concept is the Messianic light. So we can look forward to it. Hopefully this will be a Hanukkah where the Mashiach will come and begin to change the entire fabric of the Jewish people. Any questions? Amen. Great class, Rabbi. Yes, thank you. So I have a question. Yeah. Uh, what happens with the eclipse exactly? Like, what? How does that um, transfer of um, power, and how does it work? It works. It goes through the sefirot. Like, how does it work? Well, what it is is that they, the, the, as the Gemara says, they reckon their calendar by the sun. So therefore, any concealment of the sun, right, is a blockage of their power, of their spiritual energy. So that's why the Gemara says, Liko Yachamo, that a, a blow, a, a blow to the Chamo, the sun, right, is Simen Rale Goyim, is a bad Simen, because the sun represents their power, and therefore, when the moon goes in front of it, because that's what an eclipse is, total eclipse of the sun, is when the moon is between the earth and the sun, you see, and it blocks the sun. Because the moon always goes in front of the sun, but what it does is it doesn't block the sun. It's either, its orbit places it either above the sun 
or below the sun as it transits, you know, the sun. But every once in a while, it goes exactly in front of the sun. So it blocks the entire sun, which is astounding, you see. And that blockage is symbolic of a blockage of the energy of the Goyim, of Esav, and so on. And therefore, what I find remarkable is that Teves, which is the month of the beginning of the mazel of Esav, is going to be blocked by, an, uh, by a, uh, a physical event, astronomical event, that is actually a bad simon for them. Well, hopefully, that will have enormous repercussions for the Jews. That's what it means. Any other questions? Wow. How did did they, how did Esav, like, who picked the months where they got their power, we got our power, like, how did it formulate that way? Well, a lot of it has to do with the constellations. Because Teves is also Capricorn the goat, which is one of the 12 mazolas. And Esav was hairy like a goat. His, he's called Seir, which comes from the word Seir. A Seir is a goat, you see. So his mazel of Capricorn the goat, that's the mazel, it's one of the zodiac, right? That's called his mazel. Now, Esav also has another month, which is his mazel, Right? And that is Tamas and half of. So Esav has a mazel for some reason, and that's also you should know, that's the dead of the winter. The winter represents, you know, death and so on. So Esav starts off with Shredish Tevis, and it goes to Shvat, Chamishos Bishvat, you see? And then from Tu Bishvat and on begins the mazel of Yosef, which is Shvat and Ado. Esav also has a month called Tammuz, see, and half of Av. And we know, of course, Av is bad for the Jews and so on, you see. So, in many ways, it's the mazel or the shefa of the influence or the force of these constellations. And, you know, what they represent in the spiritual domain. Because, obviously, a constellation is just stars, you know, that look like a certain picture. But the stars basically, according to the, the uh, Ramchal and so on, they in many ways rec- represent the spiritual forces. They are conduits of spiritual forces, you see. But in any case, um, this is what's about to happen. It's about to happen in, uh, on Shabbos. Now, you should know one thing, eclipses are rare, they don't happen very often, especially total solar eclipses, you see. And it's going to happen on Shabbos. The problem is it's not viewable in many pla- most of the earth. It has a thin, narrow band. You know, it's while the moon is in front of the sun, right, the earth is still turning. So the question is, where is the shadow of the moon blocking the sun? There's a shadow because it's blocking the sun. Where does it fall on the earth? You know, it's when the eclipse starts, 
right? Then it starts. We at which point on the earth, in other words, at w- uh, which part of the earth points to that uh, moon blocking the sun? So therefore the shadow of the eclipse starts at that point and for the duration of the eclipse, you know, however long it is, the eclipse can be as long as eight, nine minutes, that shadow will be on the earth, the surface of the earth, right, for as long as the moon is in front of the sun. So it has a certain length. It could be a couple of thousand miles that the shadow actually goes over the earth. That's the path of the eclipse, you see. I heard that it's going to be in Antarctica, which is unfortunate, because nobody's going to go, going to, go to Antarctica, you know. Uh, but whatever it is, it's a, it's, a, it's a very bad sign for Esau, you see, which for Jews, of course, is a very good simon. Anyway, so uh, if everybody has no questions, everybody should enjoy Hanukkah, you know. Thank you, Rabbi. Rabbi, what do you uh, think of this new variant? Rabbi. Well, obviously the Bershom is not finished with this world. The Bershom is not finished with this world. You know? Look, we are in a holding pattern. And the holding pattern is, I once mentioned, that justice has to be satisfied in order for the Rabbanisham to bring the Mashiach. Because like I said, we are in the Memteshai Tumah. We are on the 49th level of con- uh, contamination, which is the worst possible situation. I mean, it's obvious because you take a look at the incredible moral degradation of the United States. And it's not just the United States. It's, it's the evil of China, the evil of Iran, Russia. I mean, this world is filled with evil, you see. And it's immorality, it's evil. I mean, just look at what's going on in the U.S. You know, there's a whole team, 80 people, broke into stores in San Francisco. It's just incredible what's going on. It's Hefka, you see. And like I say, you know, all of this is to cause pain and suffering, uncertainty among people, which itself is frightening because nobody knows what to do, you see. And of course, the politicians are basically at home. You know, they're all out to lunch. And especially the progressives and the Democratic Party, all trying to destroy the world. But in any case, it will go on as long as it has to until the world will have achieved its uh, justice. And then that's it. Then something will happen where the Mashiach, uh, he will begin his journey. You know, the whole program will begin. Do you think that's he was released? About. What was that? Do you think he was released? Do, you Do think I think he was Mashiach released now? Was released? Yet? No. I don't think so. I don't think so. Do you think after the eclipse? Hopefully it's going to be on Shabbat. That's when you Yeah, maybe. I mean, that's why I brought it down. I wanted to... Most people don't even know what... They're not even aware that there's going to be a total eclipse of the sun. On Rosh Chodesh Tevez. Most people don't know what Rosh Chodesh Tevez symbolizes. You know? So that's what I wanted to inform everybody. We're about to 
you know, what's about to occur is a spectacular spiritual event against evil. You know, that's great. And on the parasha when he gets released. Exactly. Yeah. Miketz is when he gets released. And Miketz, two years, after two years, it's almost been two years from Corona. <laughs> yes, that's also true. <clears throat> you know, I, I always find an interesting idea. Yosef was in Egypt for 13 years. He was kidnapped at 17, and he stood in front of Paroi at 30. 30. So it comes out that he was a slave and he was a prisoner in Egypt for 13 years. You know, it's a long time to be without anybody. And believe me, Egyptian prisons were no picnic. You know, it was a terrible place to be in, and so on. Uh, but it's interesting that when he was finally freed, when God said, enough is enough, I'm going to free Yosef, you know, because he suffered enough, and he's, he did what he had to do, and so on. In one Pasuk, which is astounding, he was freed. Where it says, you know, and they took him out of the pit, they shaved him, bathed him, and so on, and he stood in front of Parai. Could you imagine in one Pasuk, he experienced total freedom. And the miracle is not just that he was freed, you know. The miracle is that he stood in front of Paroi and he became the Grand Vizier. Who ever heard of something like that? You know, a guy gets out of prison and he becomes the President of the United States or the mm-hmm. acting head. I mean, who ever heard of something like that? We can't, we can't even begin to fathom the incredible miracle of what that means. You know, guy's lucky to get out of prison. And he gets out, and then he becomes the Grand Vizier, the second most powerful man after Paroi. And Egypt in those days was a very powerful country. It's incredible. The only one who can pull that off is the Rabban Islam. These things never happen, you know, and so on. So he, this happens, of course, in Parshish Miketz. And in Parshish Miketz, he's out in one Pusuk. So it's not just that he got freed. It's that he ascended to unbelievable kingship. Power. That's what... So you have both of these things. That he was freed. And he, in one moment, in, one, in less than, what, three hours, whatever it was, he became the second most powerful man in Egypt. That's what's going to happen when Mashiach ben Yosef is freed from his spiritual bonds, chains, right? It's not just that he's going to be freed. He's going to assume a position of incredible success and power. And that's something that, you know, we have to look forward to. So when we, the, the, the takeaway lesson is when the Bansham finally brings the gula. It's going to happen with unbelievable speed and with unbelievable power. It's like Moshe Rabbeinu, finally, when the xer of straw is over, that power said they got to gather straw, all of a sudden Moshe Rabbeinu comes in and says, by the way, I'm back. But this time I'm back with my power fully reinstated. And guess what? 
not only does he, he's back in power, but he turns the Nile to blood. Could you imagine a river as wide as the Nile turning into blood? And I want to tell you something. The Red Cross would have had a field day. Imagine all that blood, you know? That's, we're, we're, we're talking about a power that's unimaginable. Can't understand that. You know, okay, there could be a miracle or whatever, but a whole river becomes blood? Who ever heard of something like that? That's the power of a Mashiach. And that's what will happen, you see, when the Mashiach Ben Yosef gets freed. So the Geula is going to be spectacular. It's not going to come. It'll go slowly. But each step will be spectacular. And that will make up for all the time that the Jews su- suffered. So could you imagine watching this man perform these type of miracles? It's unimaginable.